worse than that. A lot of them will be retired. You've got nothing better to do but do what? Drive around. And there's a great opportunity to make money here. This isn't actually slavery, but I can see a group of PA sitting there with a banjo singing Old Man River. An abscess, you know, the size of a sawball. Boys and girls. And Greg children Mar- and children yes. of all ages, yes, right. of course. Gregory yeah. Henry, Rick Bucata, the January issue of Risk Management Monthly, and our guest this month is Dr. Kevin Clower. Kevin's been on with us in the past, and we're very fortunate that he's able to participate this month. Um, Kevin's been everywhere. I think he irons shirts, he bakes bread, he takes in laundry. Kevin Clower is everywhere in emergency medicine. Well, actually, I saw him preside as the... Um, at the council meeting uh, at ASEP, uh, was that about a m- month ago or so? October. There you go. That was your first one? Yes, uh, sir. You did a fine job. You knew the, all the rules of uh, conducting a meeting. What do you, what do you use, the Sturgis or Roberts? Uh, we we're, use Sturgis. We're Sturgis. As, as a guideline, sir. Sturg- as a guideline. <laughs> yes. yes isn't, that, isn't that the place where they have the big motorcycle rally every year, Sturgis? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what well, the same. In that's the, in South Dakota. In their Rick. spare time, they came up with rules of how to hold a meeting. <laughs> they had to do something. <laughs> they right. really had to do something. That's right. right. Kevin well, is um, the chief medical officer for AMP, Emergency Medicine Physicians of Canton, Ohio. And uh, has been in that position for mm, a year or so now? Uh, probably coming up more than three, right? Oh, my goodness. Time, time passes in a hurry. Which means that he's responsible personally for the medical care provided by about 700 providers. Is that a reasonable statement? It is. Yeah, this is the herding cats. <laughs> well, last month we had um, Dighton Packard. Packard. Yeah. He only has 11,000 people to be responsible for. That's a so, lot. I mean, you know, he, he can he could probably do 700 on one foot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But the idea of having the uh, responsibility for all of these independent cusses, doctors and mid-levels, and speaking of mid-levels, we would we would do want to put a little emphasis on that this month because last month, Kevin, you participated with Greg and I in a course that we did for mid-levels uh, out in Las Vegas, and um, there was a lot of medical legal uh, issues that have been coming up. So we talked before. We'd like you to spill the beans on what EMP does to keep itself out of trouble. Now, I, I know that there are some proprietary things there, and I know Mike Frank's listening, so we got to be a little careful. Dominic never listens, so we don't have to worry yeah, about Yeah, yeah, don't worry you know. about Dominic. Right? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just get him in the Wall Street Journal. He'll be happy. But in <laughs> any case, what, what, what do you see as the trend in suits, um, if you see any trend? Well, I do. I see some trends that, that haven't necessarily happened ov- overnight, Rick and Greg, and Greg probably has seen this well as well with his exposure. But infectious disease keeps coming to the top of the That's list. exactly what Dighton said. Yeah, I know. It, <laughs> they, if they, they didn't listen to each other, I promise you. Consulting in the I, I would, there? I would listen to Dighton Packard, but we did not have a conversation about this. But what's interesting is um, complications to sepsis. We're seeing even the patients that have had a complication. They, they survived their episode of sepsis, but ultimately had digital or foot or, or extremity amputations or some sort of complication. They make a very good plaintiff because they're very sympathetic. And yes, it's a bad disease. And it may seem apparent in retrospect what was going on. But at the time, they're in a vast sea of people who meet the SERS criterion, and we can't sort them out. And when you, when you get into a, uh, the process of treating sepsis, once it's been identified, particularly when you go down the pathway of using pressors 
that's and they may be necessary not saying it's a wrong choice but then you start to lose digits it's sac and, and sacrificing for hemodynamics you start to lose extremities and have complications due to due to ischemia and those complications increase liability well, there's no question, however, that the uh, literature, when you've gotten to the point where you've got to use pressors, you're a sick puppy. And there's not a lot of data that says we actually improve the outcomes with pressors. Uh, it's, it, it's, touch, it's touchy. I know that there are people who advocate it. Unfortunately, <clears throat> it's, it's not magic juice, and, and we have to understand that. You know, there are some new guidelines that came out in 2012, and part of the EMA course that we're, you know, begins in February is uh, we're doing a half hour on the new, improved, expanded sepsis guidelines. And um, they do talk a little bit about pressors there, and they certainly narrow down the spectrum of what you're going to use. But, you know, but if Jerry Hoffman were here, he would say the same thing you did. We don't know that any of them are better than the others and that they work. But um, I guess one of the opportunities to sue doctors is now that there is this sepsis protocol, then you can say, well, uh, did you follow a doctor? Now look at the poor outcome for Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Smith here. And um, so I think maybe the fact that it's become so protocolized, sepsis was around all, in, you know, before Manny Rivers came out with his paper. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something that I saw um, in reviewing a claim, not for our, not for our group, but I was reviewing not. cases yes. um, to for a presentation for our high risk emergency medicine course, and I found a couple claims that said directly in the first line <coughs> of the claim, had the physician followed early goal directed therapy, this patient would have wow. X Y Z. So believe me, the plaintiffs' attorneys understand this concept. At least they understand that we're supposed to be compliant with this concept. And they've grabbed onto it, and mm -hmm. so they're going to continue to pursue it. The, the political aspect of what we do is very obvious, and that is sometimes the train has left the station. It's gone. <clears throat> I was in a meeting with, uh, with uh, uh, Dan Sullivan, a man I respect very much, who, uh, who quite frankly said with his group and when he's reviewing cases, when you take something like the uh, TPA for stroke stuff, he says, it's a dead issue. It's gone. He says, you're right. The science doesn't defend it. It doesn't make any difference now because they're going to haul in people and they're going to go after you. So whether you believe or not, you have kind of a, an obligation to at least offer the therapy within the time window that exists. And I think that's the way substance is becoming is this bundle came out with, again, two points made. Lots of water, early antibiotics. We can all agree with that. That sounds pretty good to me. And, and that makes good sense. Everything else that went along with this is very touch and go. And unfortunately, we're now sucked into it. And I think that's unfortunate, but it's politically real. And we have to recognize that the sepsis bundle is discussed at, at high levels everywhere. Well, one good point, too, that we can make in contrasting this to the TPA issue, Greg, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, as much as I will fight it and, and I'm kicking and screaming all the way, I agree, patients should be offered the therapy. Now, when I offer it, and, and as you're, you're providing the informed discussion, informed consent for the patient, that part can't be deferred. You can have somebody sign the form, take the form into them, but the person offering the treatment has to be the one to have the informed discussion. So when I offer it, they never want it. 
So I'm not surprised because my perspective on it is not a positive one when I provide it to them. The difference <clears throat> I'm seeing is, is the time frame. We've had, you know, the whole issue with TPA is going on a lot longer than early goal-directed therapy. And now several studies have come out unbundling the bundle, looking at, does CVP even correlate with intravascular mm -hmm. volumes? No. Um, you know, do, is there any evidence to even support that transfusing people with sepsis when their hemoglobin is below a certain level is beneficial? No. Does dobutamine work? No. And now we're starting to get enough evidence that maybe we can't stop the train, but we can turn the train a little bit. And maybe we should focus on sepsis. There'll be some metrics set up. The third-party payers, the federal government, and anyone else who's interested will follow. But it won't have all the components that we know as early goal-directed therapy that was originally proposed by Manny Rivers. I believe that will be unbundled. You know, there's a, uh, there's a history in this country of falling into rah-rah medicine. We all remember when the ACLS course first came out. By God, we were pushing epinephrine and atropine till we were buying it by the, the tank car loads from the manufacturers, and nobody got to die. In fact, it was immoral, um, you know, probably fattening and, and, and illegal to not have a lot of epinephrine and atropine in them before we pronounced them dead. And now pretty much we can say, without question, neither one of those drugs saves anybody who's had a cardiac arrest. I don't know whether we're going to come to that point in, uh, in, in sepsis yet or in TPA, but these become the fashion of the time and not the product of good science. No, you're right. I read something recently, Greg, that, that ties right into what you just said. Looking at um, the fifth link, it was an article that came out in 2012. The fifth link for, for advanced cardiac life support was those places that can do hemodynamic management, respiratory management, therapeutic hypothermia. And I think the odds ratio for survival, if I'm not mistaken, if you go to one of those places, was close to eight. If you had early, I think early um, defibrillation was almost 15 or 16 odds ratio. So that was the, that was the key. But Highlighting what you just said, what was the odds ratio for ALS, advanced life support, meaning the medications that we've always been focused on, which include amiodarone, epinephrine, lidocaine, and atropine, the odds ratio for survival is one. One. It's exactly one. It's, it's exactly the it same. It doesn't exist. So we're going to move away from these medications, and I think we're going to go to ECMO for CPR, and we're going to have to have the fifth link of survival, people who can do things with people once they do survive, and hopefully that will be the standard. Well, there is this big regionalization move for survivors of uh, pre-hospital survivors of cardiac arrest where they're only going to go. This is going just like the stroke center thing. There is this regionalization of post-resuscitative care, where you have to be at a center where you can do electrophysiologic testing, um, at, at 24-hour-a-day catheterizations, and uh, you have to do so many cases per uh, year. You can't be self-designated. It's going to be, you know, some other organization. Obviously, it's going to be the Heart Association. But there's all of these criteria already developed for transferring these people directly to the, one of these centers rather than going to the closest hospital. Now, it hasn't gotten uh, major traction yet, but I've seen the criteria. They've already been proposed by the Heart Association in terms of how many cases you got to do a year to be a designated center for this stuff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. God, this is uh, th this go gets crazier and crazier, and it's uh, as if the you know the death rate's going to change because this Although, actually you know, goes on. Honestly, if I had a relative who survived in the field, I wouldn't would want them to go to the best place 
to handle their post-resuscitative care, knowing that, you know, the outcomes are traditionally bad. But I'd like to, ha- you know, some of these people have um, acute my- myocardial infarction. Some of them, they can be identified in, in, shortly after you arrive. They can be taken to the cath lab. There are cases where they're doing this now. You're talking about return of spontaneous circulation. Yes, that subset. Right, yes. right, that subset. Yes. Yeah, because at, at a certain point in time, uh, we are looking at a very unique group of people. If we look at everybody who goes down, that hundred people, maybe we have seven of the hundred went down where we actually got a return of circulation without a return of uh, cerebral function at that moment in time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't think that there are any medical legal consequences of taking a patient to the closest hospital versus a tertiary hospital now. I mean, this hasn't been formalized yet, but I think it's what we would want for ourselves and our families to go to. And, you know, people you know, want to criticize like hypothermia. I think the number needed to treat for hypothermia is like six. I think that the hypothermia, though, is still in its early stages. I think we all bought into that for only one reason because nothing else worked and somebody and, and said it, and it didn't seem to be harmful and it didn't seem to be harmful after all you've got a patient population which is going to be basically dead so if there are a few more not dead i think is what you said rick that's not a bad thing uh but i don't think the numbers that were put together are quite as robust as they ought to be yet for us to be banging drums and whistles and that sort of thing to think it's this is going to change me- medicine in America because I don't think that's going to happen. Well, as long as we don't spend a lot of money doing it and we keep the indications very narrow like they're supposed to be with a V-fib arrest, then, then I think it's reasonable to try it. You know, one thing I think is a great risk management tool and good for patient care also is family witness resuscitation. Why are we not bringing families to the bedside so they know how hard we work for their family member? Once they see what we're doing for them and there's nothing that we're hiding from them, I honestly think there's very, very limited liability um, in a resuscitation. And, but when we say that the family member didn't survive, there was a problem, they're kept in the waiting room, we're not allowing them to come back to be with them, I well, think that's an opportunity for us to really, really. All do the some papers good really support that, and you know, Al Sacchetti did all of these papers where they were talking about kids, but you know, certainly adults would also, you know, fall into that category, especially when this is the life's on the line kind of thing. You don't want to come out of the room and say, "I'm sorry, your 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 husband died." Yeah. You know, you well, what do you mean he died? He just went in with a little chest pain. What do you mean? You know, that's not cool. Um, so we asked you about trends, um, yes. and your trend here is just like Dighton said, the sepsis thing, which I think honestly is pretty artificial. They're, they've latched onto this protocol, which is now being systematically dis- <laughs> taken apart. Part. Um, but but you know th- he said the same thing. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but for our uh, intellectual benefit, what is uh, the SERS criteria? Well, I tell you, you are putting me on the spot. Um, you've got to have a temperature. You've got a white count. You've got to be tachycardic. And I think there's a respiratory component there, too. Um, I think that's the majority of them. I think you need two or three of them. I'd, I'd have to okay. look at it right in front right. of me. Because I think are. that that's yeah. generally true. Um, 99% of people who have a strep throat have a tachycardia, have 102 fever, have systemic myalgias, and are, are manifesting sim- systemic symptoms of a localized infection. So how do we, you know, how does that qualify as, oh, this person may be septic? Do you realize what our save rates would be, Rick, if we took every strep throat, 
put in a central venous catheter, <laughs> gave them fluids and central. How about norepi? Norepi. We'd save them all. We'd save them all. I th- you got to remember, as you expand the definition of who fits in your study, your save rates go up. Because what you're dealing with is a different a different group of people. There are all sorts of infectious diseases that have had that have systemic manifestations: fever, tachycardia, pyelonephritis. It could be yeah. pylo. You know, uh, but I think uh, if if you've ever had a strep throat, you think you'd wish you'd die. You right. know, they're right. terrible, and sometimes we minimize that. But I think it's a great example of a very straightforward, easily treated infection. That meets all the criteria of something that potentially could be nasty. You know what's something interesting also? Again, unbundling the bundle a little bit. You look at others' data that's out there and released recently that actually central venous oxygen saturations are not low in sepsis. They're usually normal or high. We have accepted the fight that we don't necessarily need to put a central line in to measure these numbers. And we've all along even been accepting that, that the hypothesis that that central venous oxygen saturations are low to begin with. And now the data's come out to say, no, it's not. It's not even an issue. Gentlemen, we're becoming scientific. This is risk management Well, he's brought up sepsis. How about giving us another one? Do you know any others? Yeah. It's still infectious disease. Spinal epidural abscess. Oh, my God. This is like doing last last month's tape. (laughs) Let us just tell you, last month on the tape... We had a 15-minute discussion of this because his group also is seeing spinal epidural as a skyrocketing disease simply because all these people out there, you know, everybody knows about the drug users, but now it's grandma's on Embril because of her... Rheumatoid. Ter- rheumatoid arthritis. Psoriasis. And uh, we've done... All, you know, the psoriasis people who now come in because we've suppressed them to the point where... They get two little bugs, and now they've got a MRSA that's crawling up their bodies. It's a totally Although different situation. We shouldn't go into that too much because we covered that ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. Ad nauseum. We did it. Okay. So give so us another. We'll give you another. Go ahead. Those are the two big trends I'm seeing. What I see that's on the exactly. future, on the horizon, is the issue with, um, with EMRs. Haven't the seen the cases yet. Medical records? Electronic medical records worry me. And here's you mean the invention <clears throat> of the devil? Yes, that's right. <laughs> no, the invention of the devil. That is actually the devil's tool. <laughs> the devil. Yeah. But here's the deal. Um, here's what I'm seeing. In a great paper, New England Journal of 2010 was actually one of the first to look at risk um, generated from, from an EMR. They said there are three phases, three phases of development. Initial implementation, you've got some bugs, you work them out. You, people tend to not complete their charts so they can just finish things and get to the next patient. So there's some issues with the initial phase. The intermediate phase, the biggest issue that I identified in reading this article was the introduction of metadata to our medical records. What people don't understand, it's like the medical legal matrix. The metadata is every timestamp, every click, Mm -hmm. everything you've ever done that's running behind the scenes that you don't see in your chart but is discoverable and is data that's being accumulated 24-7 while that, while that EMR is running. And believe me, they are pulling that data. They have to provide all of it. So the metadata scares me. There are things that you put in there that the computer decides to put in there that maybe can be inferred the wrong way. 
And, and there are too many examples to go into here, but you can imagine with multiple different vendors, um, what the background information says about a timestamp, whether it was a QA function or whether it was actual care that was provided, how many different providers are in this medical record, who should be named, who shouldn't be named, who's actually caring for the patient. It's a nightmare. And then the final phase, they said, listen, with all these forced functions that you, that you utilize, and let's say you have to click five times to get through um, an aspirin order. Well, by clicking as fast as you can, five times to get to the aspirin order because you know that the forced prompts, the forced functions don't mean anything. You can read them. But you're validating it every time you click on it. And once there are five gabillion mouse clicks, their data is out there to say, look, it's safe to do it this can way. Can you redeem those for frequent flyer miles? I think you can, Dr. <laughs> Henry. I don't know if we, we actually, can. Actually, uh, we have done a number of papers in this series talking about the medical legal consequences of e EMRs Absolutely. and the unintended consequences yeah. of EMRs. Oh, it, it, and you know, it's there's got to be there's got to be a place where this stops. But uh, the the worst part about EMR is if you look at the attendings who get the a copy of the chart can pull it up. The 20 pages? The 20 pages that sometimes the truth is buried in in excess data there's no question that physicians when looking at the nursing entries on the chart they repeat themselves continuously every time so the amount of data that you have to go through to actually find the next new nursing note means just assume that all humans are the same i.e if you got to do too much work you're not going to do it <laughs> and they don't go after that information because it's buried. Well, last month we gave a talk on um, for the mid-levels about um, medical records. And one of the things was you got to read the nurse's notes. Well, my sense is, is that reading nurse's notes in an EMR can be very painful. They might not do them right away. They may uh, do them be, uh, after the patient has left kind of thing. The um, I got to think it's not as easily as picking up a... A, you know, a paper record or a T chart or something like that. So it's kind of like, it's. I think there are some setups here because the doctors really need to know what the nurses thought uh, in terms of the ongoing progress of the patient. Any any conflicting data between what you think and they think in terms of how this patient's doing. And I'm not so sure that the records lend themselves to that. Well, a couple things. I mean, workflow has changed, just like you highlighted, Rick. But I don't think the providers realize the workflow has changed. Uh, many, many nurses are entering their data, particularly vital signs, after the patient has gone home. Oh, the good. physician has provided the, the, the evaluation. They've decided the patient go home. They do discharge instructions. They were never aware. But then these are added later. It is certainly their responsibility to prove at some point that, well, wait a minute. I didn't have that data. And, and then again, why... Why don't you have that data, doctor, et cetera? So the workflow has changed, and we haven't really recognized the pitfalls this is going to cause. And then the final thing that, that I saw in this particular article, which scared me completely, is that when we accept guidelines and pathways in these EMRs of the way of doing things, and we finally just accept it, we've established a false standard of care. And if we don't follow it, then we're going to be in trouble. It becomes de facto because you have done this, i.e. it is your group's standard of care at that moment in time. You're right. You've right. got a big vendor out there that does it a certain way for everyone, and we lead ourselves 
into this box canyon, if you will, one mouse click at a time because we have to get to the next patient, not realizing where we're taking ourselves. And I don't know when this is going to hit us, but I think I would say within the next five years or less, we're going to see some serious problems. Kevin, you're, you're part of one of the probably the 15 or 20 biggest groups in the country, somewhere in that range. We asked this to Dighton last uh, month. We're going to ask it to you now. How do you take mid-levels? Because we know what you do with with resident board certified residency trained kids out of the uh, residency programs. That's what they've been doing for three years. They've been to medical school. It's their intense focus of learning. How do you take a generalist PA or a generalist nurse uh, practitioner? How do you move them into practice in your departments? How do you supervise them? How do you gradually move them along? What things do you require that they present to the attending physician? That's a great question. And we may have to run over into the February issue to answer it. <laughs> well, but I we, will got tell you too. we got time. We got time. Maybe yeah. If you've underestimated our growth, Dr. Henry, we are, we are the fifth largest emergency medicine group, but our goal is not growth. It's to try and do it right. And we've ended up somehow <laughs> being the fifth. Yeah. At this point. And, and, and if I believe that, you've got land for me in Florida too, well, right? Well, I yeah. do have land in Florida for you, but that, I mean, that's what I've been told and I believe it. I'm okay. part of the mission. But, um, you know, it's an interesting time because we've had many mid-level providers just globally, not just with our group, enter the workforce because we have a workforce need that's going to be there um, for as long as I can imagine practicing emergency medicine. And we've needed the help, and so oftentimes people come into work in emergency medicine, and if they are willing to work and they're able to, when we get to the provider level, the providers are willing to say, if you can go do something, I am more than happy to let you do it so I don't have to do it. So we have a disconnect at the provider level not providing enough supervision. That does create a risk problem because I think a lot of physicians feel that, well, if the PA is involved and I'm not even involved, mm -hmm. I limit my liability and my exposure. That's exactly what we talked about last time. This, this um, disengagement of the physicians who are reluctant to see the patients that the uh, PA has asked you to see and are more reluctant to write a note down. But counselor, and you are an attorney as well, I don't know whether we pointed that out, if you sign their chart, let's say it's a Medicare patient, you sign the chart, you assume a certain responsibility as far as supervision goes, isn't that correct? You do. You accept responsibility. But I want to go one point further. If you're in the ED and you're in a situation where you're not even supervising, um, you're Everybody, every PA requires a supervisory agreement, so someone will sign off on that. But if you're not even signing off on that given chart, you're just saying, hey, we're going to bill at 85% the physician fee schedule, so I'm not required to see that patient. There are many physicians out there thinking they have no liability. That is not true. You're still the physician in that department at that time and the most highly trained person there. So you have some risk. You know, I've, I've heard some of the better plaintiff's attorneys <clears throat> doing depositions recently and they love to get PAs involved because they immediately start the thing, uh, physician assistant, that means you're not a physician. Is that right, provider? Oh, no, I'm not the physician. In fact, when they came into the department, did you identify yourself as a non-physician? Did they know that they were not seeing the doctor? Did they think they were seeing a doctor when they saw you? The next set of questions goes to, you had the opportunity in a difficult case like this to consult with the doctor. So why didn't you consult 
Mr. So-and-so? Is it because you think you're like a little doctor now that they come in there and you get to use your power even though you don't have the training of a physician? Is that what happened? You are a mean, angry man, Dr. Henry. (laughs) You are. You're going to make me cry sitting here. I'm afraid of you. But you're you're right. That's exactly what can happen. And if we go back to your other example, okay, maybe the doc signs off in the charts saying, agree with above or whatever I've looked. Maybe the the extent of supervision provided, even if we're going to bill at the 85% level, is to review the chart and sign off. Well, you've signed that you agree with the care. And you didn't go in to see them. So, I mean, the safest, of course, but may not be the most effective for for operational efficiency and cost is that the docs see every case, but that as we're finding and we're seeing, that's probably not practical. And if people are trained appropriately, that there's probably a subset of patients and the challenge is to identifying which ones they are, uh, which subset of patients are safely seen by advanced practice providers, non-physician providers, as CMS refers to them as, or mid-level providers, I think the old term that's going out, you know, we have to identify which ones are actually safe. You know, one consideration um, that we're implementing at this point, and I think others have too, this isn't unique necessarily to us, is using an established triage system that's out there, ESI. You know, ESI is out there, and ESI 5 is basically a, you know, a, a prescription refill. A 4 requires no resources, you know, um, and I think maybe it's okay. But always, always, if the, if the uh, advanced practice provider wants a physician to see the case, that policy has to be there. You always have to have the ability to pull the doc in, uh, and I think that's very important to remember. Having the ability to pull the doc in is not the same as having a working list of situations where the doc must be pulled in right how do we move in an intelligent way so that there's still judgment involved but that we we have a group of disease entities such that uh, the return visit within 24 hours Doctor has to see it, yes, or I, I don't mean somebody who's coming back for a wound check, but I mean somebody who's an unplanned return visit. How do we know which ones should be seen? No, I agree with you. You've got to build into your policies the high-risk cases. And this is really about good patient care. Secondarily, it's about risk management, I think. So if somebody's coming back with an unscheduled uh, 24, 48, or 72-hour return, yeah, you need to consider whether the doc should be involved. I think those are high-risk cases. Um, the very young, the very old, those who are sickest with certain complaints, absolutely. Uh, I really think so. Should a physician be interpreting every radiograph? If the radiologist isn't, maybe that's something the doc needs to do. Um, or you have to make sure that you've, you've provided enough training. Assuming that somebody comes out of a physician assistant or an advanced practice nurse training program and knows how to hit the ground running in emergency medicine or adequately interpret radiographs Why would you assume that? Why would you assume that, right? And and I don't, but um, reflecting back on my initial comments, many others do. Thank God the cavalry arrived. We've got people who can help us staff and I can get them credentialed and you take care of patients so now you can come work in the emergency department. And instead of saying, okay, we have a resource, but we have to develop this resource so it's appropriate for our environment. And that's why I have to credit you, Rick, with, with uh, the course you've developed um, to help people. And I think it has to go beyond that because uh, probably groups have to structure policies, structure orientations, et cetera, around how they want advanced practice providers to work in their group. Almost 80% of the cost of health care in the United States is personnel cost. It isn't just the buildings and the machines. It's the personnel. What is your group doing at this point in time? 
to look at what is the ideal staffing model in an emergency department. I mean, what could we do about how many nurses do we actually need? How many techs do we need? What's the ratio? How do we decide how we're going to put together a cost-effective yet safe package for the patient who's coming in? You got any hard questions? Hmm? <laughs> Why don't you give him a few hard questions? Yeah, this one's going to go into Wait the large issue. Wait a second. <laughs> Jeez, after, this, after this one, we're getting into the meaning of life. But the, but the point is, as you pointed out, you're the fifth or sixth largest group in the country. Everything is going to deal with this staffing issue. Who's there? Who's doing the work? Because last time I checked, you're sending bills. And if you get to pay less money to people, there's more money left over for you. And I think we have to be very careful, and other groups have had challenges with this, is really making sure you're balancing quality of care, risk management, and cost effectiveness. Yes, operational flow kind of works in there too, (coughs) but you can't sacrifice quality just to make sure there's more dollars to line somebody's pocket. You cannot do that. Yeah, the problem in using various personnel in emergency medicine is nobody wants to, to run a line that says, this is quality, this isn't. Seeing a child under the age of one month should be seen by the physician. That's a quality indicator. You know, these are the kinds of things that aren't being done. We, use, we throw out the term quality without any hope of knowing what that means. Well, this is also seductive because these folks get paid less than physicians, but they still are well paid. And there's a great opportunity to make money here. And so I think that there's been a tendency to kind of look the other way because it is just so seductive to bring these folks in. They've got licenses. They've got the, the, uh, the, the credentials, th- uh, theoretically, and to incorporate them in the practice when, to tell you the truth, you really don't know what they don't know. No, you're, you're right. And they don't know what they don't know. And that's, the, that's worse. See, it is that's worse. worse. And, you know, you look, I... Um, this isn't actually slavery, but I can see a group of PAs sitting there with a banjo singing Old Man River. Oh, I mean, boy. this is a problem. <laughs> it is a problem. And I, I just um, uh, wrote a summary of this. I'm glad we're talking about this topic, but wrote it for uh, Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. It should be coming out um, next month or the following, summarizing Jim Ducharme's twisted your arm. He did not twist. He did not twist. No. And, um, but I was more than happy to do it. And one of the numbers I came up with, I think the average compensation right now was like about 130 grand. Um, so when you look at how seductive, as That's you put it, it is. For well, emergency, uh, let's make sure everybody understands what we're talking about. A PA in emergency medicine working full-time, 130 grand. I believe it was, it was close to that number. And the, mm-hmm. and the advanced practice nurses were only a couple thousand off of that. And so when I did the calculation in this article, I thought, you know, I can see how people get pulled into this because you got, you know, a doc on the average, somewhere between 250 and 300 on the average, you know, in, in the country. I know that's going to change, but right now, so how many of these um, advanced practice providers can we hire um, as opposed to, to physicians? But you have to make sure you balance everything. It can't all be about cost. And you have to, as Greg said, you have to pick the right people. We have to make sure that, that we, we select the right disease entities, select out the high-risk um, presentations, and make sure that the physician is involved appropriately. But if we think we're going to go into this still at this day, and I tell you, if you asked me two years ago, I would have said, nope, the best way to do it is have every physician see every case. I don't know how we can maintain that. So instead of 
ignoring it. We have to figure out the right way to do it. Well, that's really interesting that you mentioned that because I have re- repeated what you've said in terms of what your I thought your policy was in terms of seeing every case because, you know, obviously that is a fairly unusual, very conservative point of view. But frankly, that's exactly what we did. And after a period of time, three or four years, you know, there was a little grumbling by our docs, you know, because they, um, you know, and I'm sure that there were cases who were not seen by the doctors who they thought it was pretty straightforward. It was an ankle or a toe or something, um, you know, pretty benign. But um, uh, it's interesting that you, your group is making the transition because it certainly isn't the most efficient way to see patients. <clears throat> right. And this is a recent transition. Over the last few months, we've looked at it. Actually, I've brought in an additional educator to take a look at what is our training mechanism going to be and how are we going to develop the, really the scope of practice within our group. Um, I've actually, um, um, as my role as ASAP, um, uh, ASAP Council Vice Speaker, participate in the board deliberations and, and the board retreat. The last two years, I've raised this question too. ASAP is going to have to define what the appropriate scope of practice is, and I think ASAP should really define what the ideal or or what are ideal staffing models in emergency medicine based on what the future is going to be. We can't let someone do this for us. I don't espouse to have the answers, but I think I have some of them, and I think this is evolving, but we have to evolve with it, and we have to make decisions as opposed to having this decided for us. Other people are running out there now implementing <coughs> Um, um, different workforce models in their departments, I don't think they're considering all the ramifications. They're just doing it. The, um, this is a risk management program. And oh, is that what we're supposed you know, to be I think talking so. about? And, and <laughs> before, Kevin, when I was putting you a little bit under the lawyer hot seat of some of those questions, I did that for a specific reason, and that is there are programs out there for plaintiff's attorneys to take which have to do with mid-level providers, how to put everybody under the hot seat, how to ask the question, here are the question lines. I now have been involved in, oh, in the last year, probably 10 or 12 cases where there's a a physician and a mid-level involved. And you can't believe the amount of cowardice and running for the hills on the part of the physician who say, I didn't see the case. I wasn't involved, doctor. Could you have seen the case? Couldn't you have walked in the room knowing that it was an older person with low back pain? Uh, You know, these sorts of things. The only reason I point that out is because this is another place. If you look at the average tax-paying American citizen who's sitting on a jury, he's watched his health care costs skyrocket. The fastest-growing part of him, him or her not getting more money is that they're deducting more for the health care costs. Now they're going to get to try a doctor for not walking in and seeing a patient. It is essentially class warfare. And whether you like it or not, I think there's some potential here, and certainly the legal community is, is understanding, again, this is show business, If the show is, I'm paying huge amounts of money, and I'm not getting doctor-level service, and they've got somebody working for half the money. And they made a serious mistake. Yeah, and they made a serious mistake. They're lying in their pockets. We're going to get them. Well, here's one for you also. Just like there would be with a physician, just like uh, with a physician's group, and just like there would be for a nurse with a hospital. 
there is absolutely culpability with a lack of orientation. That's a different topic, but it plays in here nicely as well. That if you don't orient somebody well enough and there's a bad outcome because they, they made a mistake because they didn't know where equipment was or they didn't know how to do something, well, it's not just the provider. The group is at risk. The hospital is at risk. So if you bring on mid-level providers and they're not adequately trained or supervised or oriented to be in the department, oh, you certainly as a group or a hospital, whoever employs those advanced practice providers, they are culpable and they are liable. Last question, I, one of the last questions I saw asked at ADEP was, well, they did train you on what you had to present to the doctor, didn't they? They have a list of that, don't they? Produce for me the list of those disease entities or situations or diagnoses which you must show to the doctor. We don't have one. They didn't get one. You realize to a, to a group of people sitting on a jury, that can be an inflammatory question that these guys know all this stuff, they make all this money, and they don't even have a list as to what the physician assistant should or should not be seen. I think we're building ourselves here a medical legal nightmare. No, I agree with you. So a, a crafty plaintiff's attorney might then ask, so why would you go to the doctor with a case? Oh, when I need help because I'm in over my head or it's, it's beyond my scope or it's beyond my knowledge and I need help. So without a list or without clear guidance, how do you know what you don't know? And we're done. We're finished right there. Yep, exactly. And so I, I think that uh, this is a problem that isn't resolved. No. And if, if we believe that we've, that we've gotten control of this yet, um, I, th- I think, at least as I look at my cases, and the problem with med legal stuff is there's a lot of us looking at cases, but we don't truly correlate those cases. And we don't know exactly what that number is, but all I can say is my subjective opinion is the number of PA plus doc cases has has dramatically gone up. And And again, if there's enough of it around that the plaintiff's bar is holding classes, courses, in how to dissect mid-level practice. I think, I think that we just need to be aware that this is the new field they're going after. Well, it just seems logical. Of it's course logical. it seems logical. These are not board-certified anythings. Seeing patients more or less independently, and one of the scares is uh, that um, nurse practitioners they, in some states, they have a license to practice independently, and they can set up a doc- an office and see patients independently. But that doesn't mean that when they work in the emergency department, the group that has the contract there is not ultimately responsible for the level of supervision of that person, independent of their licensure. Well, you're right. Um, there are over 26 states now that don't require a collaborative agreement for advanced practice nurses, and that means they can function independently. Now, physician assistants are always dependent practitioners by definition every state requires them to have a supervisory agreement. But that sometimes even means, oh, well, the physician has to be um, responsible or has to be available or has to be uh, within 30 miles. That's great for, for primary care, those type of situations. As you highlighted, Rick, it doesn't matter even if you don't need a collaborative agreement. If you're working for a group in an emergency department or a hospital, 
we should make sure that there's appropriate supervision and there will be collaboration and there will be um, guidelines provided and you're going to work with us. Yeah, if you're hospital employees, the hospital should basically set the uh, level of supervision. And if you're an independent contracting group, then it's the group's responsibility to ascertain what level of patients will be seen by who. By who. Um, it's not Honestly, something that I think is extraordinarily risky. I really there, do. there are emergency departments in rural America that are staffed by advanced practice providers without any direct physician input or on-site supervision. No, nope. right. exactly. Heard, I've heard of that. Yes, yeah. but you know, and what are you going to do? You know, you're in the middle of nowhere. It's them or nothing. You want to drive 50 miles to the next hospital, and there is this element of telemedicine, which I think does have a lot of potential. Well, this may be this may be the next great frontier that people are going to. Well, we've got you here as we're looking at the major groups that are that are turning out people. What do you require them, i.e., the docs, the PAs, the nurse clinicians? What do you require them to do for their own med legal risk management training each year? What does what your group require of your DACs? Well, we do several things with them. and um, they got a course. Uh, absolutely, we have a course. And we, our initial, um, our legal department is, um, is chaired and administered by Mike Frank, who is... Um, hey, Mike, you listening now? He might be. MDJD, <laughs> who, is, who is great at risk management. He started a risk management program. We do have high-risk emergency medicine, our course. All of our docs have to, have to go in their first year of employment. We also have a risk management orientation that I put together that's um, 26 hours of CME and modules that they have to do when they start their employment. The, the um, uh, advanced practice providers or mid-level providers must take it as well. And we're constantly providing them with risk management and practice improving education. And so we're highly focused on risk management because all of our physicians own a piece of our insurance company. We don't insure anyone outside. We have a risk retention group and all the docs own a piece of it. So they have a vested interest in our risk management profile and our claims history because they have equity in the insurance company. Uh, just for those listening who don't know what a risk retention group is, give them two I've minutes. heard of anal retention. That, <laughs> yes, That's you much, have that, Rick. It's much in the same thing. Well, to not take up too much time, basically, it's one way of self-insuring yourself. So you self-insure, you collect the premiums, we put those premiums aside, and um, we function as a normal insurance company that is licensed to do so. And we're after... Over time, if your claims history is good, you're able to develop enough financial equity that you have a stronger insurance company, but you do have control. So you pay the uh, first uh, half a million dollars and Lloyd's of London picks up the, the nasty, the big, the big dollars kind of thing? We actually, we actually go up to 750 and we do a little bit extra, 250 on top of that, but there's always discussion about whether we need to or whether we should do more or less. And yeah, I'm sure it's just a business it. decision. It, it, it absolutely is about a where because above a certain level is it just better to pay it out of cash flow then and not even be concerned about it exactly yeah. and that extra layer of insurance is frequently referred to as reinsurance on top of what you have but but oversimplification that's basically what a risk retention group and a, and a, and a captive are there are different nuances but those are self-insured type of programs if you have the ability to capitalize it meaning you have enough premium coming in that you can actually put in the capital to qualify for insurance company it's a lot of management, but actually, if you, if you do well, it's good for everybody involved. Now, you've asked him a lot of hard questions. Do you have any easy questions? Any, you know, uh, you know 
balls easily that he could slap down kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, the if you're going to ask me question. if Greg Henry is sexy thinking that's an easy question, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. I, <laughs> well, I was going to ask him the meaning of life, but then again, I, maybe we should move on. And well, you know, actually, uh, I usually don't do this, but I thought this case was so interesting. I'm interested in your opinion. Now, Dighton gave his, and obviously Greg gave his. <laughs> um, but this is a case where um, one of our listeners wrote in about this and writes uh, with some frequency, very astute fellow. Anyway, he, he reviewed a case, cut finger, numbed up the finger, uh, and then was sent to the sink to wash the finger, and you know what happened. The guy passes out. But in this case, he hits his head and has chronic residual brain damage. And in Canada, where this was tried before a judge without a jury, British Columbia, the um, judge awarded this fellow some substantial money. And but it's quite clear that he had substantial ongoing neurologic residual from this head injury that he sustained. And um, yet, all of us at the table acknowledge that. We have people going to the sink all the time. And we have all seen patients, family members faint, kind of thing, when you're suturing up little Johnny and dad's, you know, watching. And the next thing you know, dad's not in the room. And dad, come on, here's the good part, you know. And dad kind of slips out and makes some kind of excuse or like, I got to check the car, you know. What do you mean check the car? Come on, this is the best part. Uh, and so that we, every ER has, has seen that. Um do you have any sense that there, there are some risk management things that we can do? Since it, it does, it's not rare. I mean, it's happened to Greg, happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you and your group. Well, it's it's amazing to hear um, some of the facts of that case because it's surprising. Some of the elements you need, of course, you need damages to have a lawsuit. Yeah, well, clearly this, this would guy have damages. Has, yeah, he clearly has damages. But then uh, the question that I would have, first of all, is who is the plaintiff? Is it the doc or is it the hospital? The plaintiff is I'm, the well, injured I mean, party. I apologize. I mean, I mean the defendant. In Canada, I they all work for the hospital. I misspoke. The defendant. Who was named as a defendant, the doc or the hospital? But I think it really, I think in Canada, they, they are is one, it all lumped one together? and the okay. same. Well, because I don't see any any negligence on the doc uh, doc's part whatsoever unless he was the one who instructed this person. I'm not saying I agree with it, but it really should be but more hospital. But even if it was the hospital. It should be more hospital-based. So if it's the hospital, then what can you do to, to mitigate your risk or reduce your risk? Well, maybe... As a policy issue. Yeah, then maybe maybe all patients have to be have to be attended at the sink. I'm not sure. I'm thinking off the cuff here. But this sounds like a ridiculous case, quite honestly, and I'm amazed that that, that Actually, that's interesting. That's exact, exactly what David Esler, who wrote about this thing, said. But I, I see these cases, and if, if it was a member of my family, and the next thing I know, this guy is permanently you know, screwed up, I'd say, I'd be pissed. Well, and I, and I think what most people would say when you look at standard of care and the duty owed to the patient, and let's say I would end up more on the hospital side of this because I would see them with more exposure because right. it's their hospital. It was their sink that Did was the way he hit his head on Did and everything else. Did you have a else. nurse with the patient while this, this was happening? Exactly. So you realize assigning a nurse to every one of those cases, you can't do it. Uh, I, mean, I don't know that the, you can say that. I, well, I, I don't know, Rick. I, I mean, uh, we, this bothers well, me, this case. You don't want to let the, the tail wag the dog to, you know, you know uh, having bad case law really shouldn't change the way that we practice medicine and do the right things. Now, what you want to do is say, well, if you're, if you're here and you want to ambulate on your own, maybe everyone needs to sign a disclaimer or a consent form when they arrive with their, with their 
normal we've consent. We've just mentioned before, having the family members come in when procedures are done on kids right. and that kind of thing. Right. And we do incur an increased risk when that occurs. Not only, there's probably two or three levels of risk that are incurred when a family member is in attendance for a procedure or resuscitation or whatever. And maybe it's just common sense. Hey, do you think you're going to pass out? Will you be okay to go to the sink? Maybe they should sit in a chair at the sink. Maybe they shouldn't stand alone. Seatbelt around the chair. Seatbelt, exactly. Five-point harness, whatever you need to do. But I think looking at these cases, even if there are multiples and you've seen them in other jurisdictions, this just sounds like a really bad thing to formulate a lot of policy around and resources, like Greg said. So a nurse with every person. Well, no, but maybe, maybe you have to check off on your nursing form. You've asked the patient if they're comfortable to get up. Well, they said they were fine to get up. I had no reason to believe they weren't. We let people walk around the ED all day. So if a patient, same scenario, they walk to the bathroom. Most of our patients walk to the bathroom under their own power. What if that person precipitously mm -hmm. slips and falls? There's an issue there if the floor wasn't maintained properly. But what if they, what if they just pass out? But we are aware of this. Vasovagal syncopes are associated with you know the sight of blood, pain, whatever kind of thing. Right. So it, it's not quite analogous to walking to the bathroom. Exactly, but it's it's so what we can do in those cases is we're not where I was headed with this is we're not going to ask every patient, are you comfortable ambulating to the bathroom? But those who may be at greater risk, okay, do you have problems with needle sticks or sort of things? Hey, we're going to have you get up. Are you okay? Mm -hmm. At least have the nurse documented, or there could even be a checkbox, you know, that says, I've checked with the patient and verified they're comfortable. I don't know what else it's to do. It's a tough case, that's for sure. It is a tough case. And again, you know, bad cases really shouldn't prompt us to make significant policy changes and, and, and commit a bunch of resources when we don't think it's necessary. Okie dokie. Where are we set? Uh, listen, I, I have a report here that uh, may have some relevance to emergency medicine. It was a report uh, recently, LA Times. An internist is sued by the family of a 90-year-old boyfriend. 90-year-old boyfriend. I'm not proud of this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's my hero already. Of an 85-year-old demented driver. He was killed in the wait, front wait, seat. Wait, wait, wait. He's running around with a young chick. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh. So uh, <laughs> she's driving. She gets into an accident. She uh, and the, the boyfriend is killed. And the family of the boyfriend sues the doctor of the woman, uh, alleging that uh, he had a duty to, um, I guess, report her to the Department of Motor Vehicles or something like that um, because he had been treating her for two years with some drugs for dementia. Not that I know of any drugs that work for dementia. Yeah. He was treating her for this. And uh, they brought up the idea that there's lots and lots of elderly drivers. By the year 2030, they say in this paper, there will be about 57 million drivers over the age of 65, nearly double the number since 2007. And you may be one of them, Chief. <laughs> Chief, you and I are over 65. We're driving every day. Uh, here's the problem. This, this case is dependent upon state law because if you look at certain states – they do require certain kinds of reporting. Other states have no reporting. In fact, you know, in, in the state of California, if somebody's has, having seizures, you have to report them, correct? Right. Actually, there's a great lawsuit by, against a neurologist in San Diego because he thought a patient was having pseudo-seizures. And this patient had a very effective pseudo-seizure and ran into a school bus. And this guy. Those are the worst kinds of pseudo seizures. Right. God, so I hate those. He, <laughs> broke, he broke the law. He right? did not report this person. 
and his wages were garnished for the rest of his life, basically, to pay the you know for all of these people who were injured. Well, you see, in the state of Michigan, we don't have a place to report. In fact, what it says is you're supposed to tell them not to drive if they've had a seizure, and we tell everybody to put that on their on their charts. But there's no state agency which takes that information. Right. And you're talking about the the duty to warn a third party. If you know somebody could hurt somebody out, you can't you can't primarily warn all of them. So you just let the let them know you shouldn't be doing this and you've met your duty. But as you both have mentioned, if you have a state statute that requires you to report, then the the level of evidence to requ- required for your negligence or your guilt, depending on what type of a statute it is, if it's criminal or if it's, or if it's under a, a tort, is much less because it falls under negligence per se. And then and, there's this issue about, well, you're not really covered for committing crimes under your malpractice insurance. You committed a crime. You right. didn't report. Exactly right. The malpractice may not cover that because it is actually a violation of a statute. It's not a medical decision question. It's a... It's, it's, it's a violation of a statute question. We also talked about the case in, I think it was Boston, where an elderly patient was given a prescription for uh, Vicodin or something like that, and they got into an accident, and there was the same issue about the doctor who prescribed it had a duty to warn, and right. it, that was an emergency department case. So. Right. That was, a, that was a pure emergency department case. Let, let me tell you that the, the numbers here are going to be overwhelming. I mean, you, you made some I very some good points. I got some numbers here, yeah. Chief. Drivers 75 and older had the highest chances among all aged groups of being involved in a fatal crash. And re, I don't know if you remember the one, the 86-year-old who is driving his Buick in Santa Monica and went into the farmer's market where they cro- close off the street in yes, Santa Monica. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, that was 2003. He killed 10 people and injured 60. And just recently, in September, the L.A. Times reported a 100-year-old driver backed into a crowd in front of an elementary school and injured two adults and 12 children. A 100-year-old driver. I'm proud of the guy. God. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, this idea of the freedom of the American road is going to die hard. And now that you're going to have, as you pointed out in the next 10 years, 57 million baby boomers who are going to join this. Worse than that, a lot of them will be retired and got nothing better to do but do what? Drive around. <laughs> and see, I, I think that we laugh about this issue, but I think this is going to be a huge increase in these, in these injuries. And uh, right now, it's a state question. What's the state require us to do? But more states are going to, I think, come up with reporting questions, which say, you know, do you raise the issue that just like we, we raise the issue in child abuse, we say this needs to be investigated. After all, we never convict anybody of child abuse. We just say this needs to be investigated. We may now come up with laws that say if you see this, this and this, here's the form you fill out. Here's the agency which gets it so we can determine whether they still ought to be driving a well, car. Well, the issue will always be. Was it a reasonable suspicion that this person was incapable of driving an automobile? Exactly. And you are a professional, and you can make some judgment about the cognitive skills of this person. Yeah. You know, Greg, um, maybe you know this, or maybe Rick, is there any state that has a requirement to retest? 
Actually, I mean, maybe it's some yes, age. there is. Okay. Absolutely. California requires drivers over the age of 70 to renew their licenses in person. So not just a new picture. The story, Yeah, <laughs> okay. I don't think so. Right. I think you have to take the little driving test. The story didn't include the outcome of this case that we talked about where uh, the 90-year-old boyfriend is killed by the 85-year-old um, driver. They also point out that as of 2011, seven states had mandatory reporting laws for doctors who believed a driver was impaired. But older patients may avoid doctors if they know the drivers are that they might get reported. My mom is 90. She is perfectly lucid, perfectly lucid, and I believe she is fully capable of driving, particularly during the day. And um, yet, um, she basically at 90 has to go for the real McCoy driving test and, tr- and drive some y- y- rubber snapper around, you know, to pro- prove that she can do. It. I think it's a reasonable thing. I just want to see I her do the reasonable. parallel parking part of the exam. <laughs> Because, you know, I've got, I've got a bunch of people who aren't going to pass that one, I promise you. California requires drivers 70. That's not I'm, – I'm getting close to this. I'm going to have to go for a live driving test for crying out loud. I know it. I know it. I, in fact, we're going to all show up that day and heckle you, Rick. I mean, it's going to be very, <laughs> be very great. funny. Very, take the smaller car. So there is some medical legal implications in – prescribing medications that can alter your consciousness, or dealing with people who, uh, in your professional ability uh, as screening, are maybe compromised somewhat. And yes, they drove to the ER. By the way, this is the, this is the area called uh, duty as agent of the state. Because what the state has decided is the emer- that physicians are a screening module to decide whether people should be reexamined whether they should be allowed to have. And remember, driving is not a right guaranteed in the Constitution. It's a privilege extended by each state. It's not a right. It's a privilege. And so the state decides whether you keep a privilege or not. Uh, It was very hard to tell my father that. I'll tell you that right now. And I had to pull the distributor wire off the car. And he'd say to me, Greg, get out there and see why the car doesn't work. Okay, Dad. Fortunately, he would have forgotten that he asked me. But uh, we kind of had to do that. I, th- I think that this is not an uncommon situation. Oh, this is a very tough situation. That's going to happen to all of us. Often the family members somehow get the keys away and are the ones who really do the job uh, because they feel it's unsafe for the, you know, the person to be driving. They try to come up with some alternatives in terms of transportation, things that really doctors really are not and should be involved in, I don't think. Um, I also wanted to mention, you know, there's the HCAP survey, which is a totally different subject. Can we right. do, can we do Can we s- switch gears? Sure. Well, you know, the HCAP survey is a mandatory survey from CMS for a certain percentage of patients who are admitted to the hospital in terms of, you know, asking them all kinds of questions about did they take care of your pain? Were they nice to you? Were they reasonable? And all this other kind of stuff. And since maybe 40% of people from... Uh, in the hospital have come through the emergency department. Um, We've recently talked in some of our courses about things that you ought to know about that survey because, you know, they're going to ask about pain management. Well, you're part of the team that's going to take care of that. One of the most recent things I heard, this is brand new. This is going to really frost you. So there's a pilot program now implemented by the feds under the Obamacare program, which allows patients to complain directly to the feds regarding their care by either telephone or by internet. And um, here's a sample of what's on the pilot reporting form. The questioner asks, 
um, about mistakes and, and care issues. Like, like number one, a doctor or nurse or other healthcare provider did not communicate well with the patient or the patient's family. That's, you can report that uh, now to the feds. As of this, I think this begins effective as of May. A healthcare provider didn't respect the patient's race, language, or culture. Can you imagine the number of complaints are going to be flying into the feds? A healthcare provider didn't seem to care about the patient. A healthcare provider was too busy. Oh, geez, come to, come to the ER, you know? Yeah, exactly. A healthcare provider didn't spend enough time with the patient. Healthcare providers failed to work together. Healthcare providers were not aware of care received someplace else. These are the what's on the form, which you're going to be asked the patient to report directly to the feds. So it's just more and more and more of the same kind of thing. God help us, Rick. We're it's we're just damn lucky they you're didn't da- have you're that. out, man. Yeah, I'm just gonna say with it, they didn't have that form. You know, when we started, or you and I would have been, we, we'd have been picked off. There's another one from on. Dr. Henry about Dr. Henry. There's yeah, a big yeah. stack of Henry's complaints. Yeah, my God. I don't think it has much to do with risk management, except that, you know, there's two issues of patient care. One of them is the medicine, and the other is the caring. Did they like you? And right? if the caring is good, I think people are willing to, you know, be a little forgiving about the medicine. If the caring is bad, you know, the doctor didn't have any time for you, didn't answer my questions, was in, didn't spend, was in here two minutes, but didn't, didn't put the stethoscope on any part of my body kind of thing. And then there's an, a not so good outcome. I think it's just a setup. So I think it's part of the job. And now you can see that everybody's concerned about it. The feds are concerned about it from the HCAPs. Now they're concerned about it in this survey as well. Well, it's- and you're absolutely right. Communication and making the patient happy is important. They are absolutely the best person qualified to decide if they think you were nice to them, they think you cared, you tried hard, but they can't judge the quality of medical care. No. They're not medically trained. But none so. of these questions, I think, really relate to none. medicine. No, you're right. <laughs> They're all about caring. So we've got to focus on that. Make it, make it a core competency. Anything else you guys want to talk about be, before we do wine of the month? Oh, do you, I think you had a case or two. Greg, do you want to do a quick case? Just, okay. Just one. Case for discussion. You might as well do common disease because it occurs commonly. And by the way, it's more likely that a common disease will occur in an uncommon manner than an uncommon uh, disease will uh, will uh, appear in its common form. Oh, I got that. What are you What I'm saying is we're going to talk about the failure to diagnose appendicitis, which then caused sepsis and complications and and this was this was ugly. It's one of those things where if you kind of look at what happened, uh, you follow down the line. This is a seventy-five-year-old woman. Now, all of us tend to think about this in younger patients. Here's a seventy-five-year-old woman, not in a problem, and when it turned to stool, quite literally turned to stool, uh, it, it it was bad. But the the the, the plaintiff uh, is a seventy-five-year-old woman. She goes in, seen at the emergency department, little nausea, a little stomach pain, uh, a little tightness, no specific findings in the abdomen at that time. No guarding, no rebound, none of this sort of stuff. Reassured by the emergency physician, uh, you go see your doctor tomorrow, see how you're doing. And he 
problems with that? Sounds reasonable, right? Uh, well, you know, we are Monday morning quarterbacks on this. Abdominal pain in the elderly is scary stuff. It's not the flu. Uh, and when the abdominal per, uh, pain, an older person, 75, comes in with abdominal pain. And um, the incidence of rupture is like kids. Rupture in kids is higher, and rupture in the elderly is higher. Right, exactly. Uh, in fact, depending on if you look at, at the, the data on rupture in kids, little kids, if you're under a year and you've got appendicitis, the chances are 90% is go, are going to be ruptured at the time. So what did your doctor do wrong here? Well, the doctor didn't do anything wrong except she went back to see her own family doctor who said, you've got, uh, you've got uh, constipation and an upset stomach. Oh, shoot me. Yeah, shoot me. <laughs> now, they went on. She then comes back in a week. Now, there's some question as to what the doctor told her as to when this would resolve and when it didn't, that sort of thing. But the emergency doc himself was dropped from the case. The uh, internist who she went to see, however, was found, uh, was found guilty. And when, when, they re, when they did a CT scanner, c- CT scan on her in uh, seven days, she had a, an abscess, you know, the size of a softball, and it was, uh, it was not a good thing. Well, I guess the message here is you really, really have to be careful with elderly abdominal pain. The threshold for doing a workup, you know, and a CT has got to be lower in those cases. Um, I don't know that there's a standard of care issue here necessarily, but... Well, I think you look at was it reasonable. Probably Rick and I would have done the CT. Greg, I'm not sure where you're at on it. But, you know, might have done a workup. But but is it reasonable that he could follow her up the next day and she seemed to be fine then? Maybe that's reasonable. See, that seems reasonable to me so, in this case. So it's reasonable. What well, I it, think it, is it interesting... Was the point nor- where they dropped the doc- ER doctor? Well, it must have been. Well, it must have been reasonable, but right? he went through. But he went through some pain to get to the point where he could be I'm sure. But here's the thing I find interesting, and I've mentioned this to others. I'd be interested to hear what the two of you think. I think the error that he made that got him pulled into this suit is that if you're going to refer somebody for an abdominal complaint, that maybe the only thing you're going to worry about is if it's missed surgical disease for the most part, then why are you sending them to somebody who never sees acute surgical disease of the abdomen? Because it was her family doctor. Well, she, you could send it to her father if he was still around, and that wouldn't make him qualified to evaluate the abdomen. Except her father is, was chairman of surgery well, at Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Well so, said, okay. sir. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, but bring them back to the ED or bring them to a surgeon because then you'll get a qualified opinion. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many cases like this, Greg, you probably have too, where somebody's sent back to their family doctor and all they do is take the instructions from the emergency department and follow the same care path. Right. And there's no real reevaluation. Well, there, there is a trajectory in disease. And that is, if one doctor thought it was this, then it, that must be the case, right? Right. That must be. It's like it's like getting a transfer into the department from another hospital for the broken leg from an auto accident. No, they have a broken leg. What about the spleen? What right. about this? What about that? And I've certainly watched those cases where, when ortho actually got there to look at the leg. Their blood pressure was 70 over 40, pulse rate 120, and the, the spleen was now becoming uh, obviously ruptured at that point in time. Well, you wonder what the ER diagnosis was in this uh, 75-year-old woman that he felt comfortable sending her home. Um, you don't even want to know. 
Don't tell me it was gastroenteritis. Constipation. Constipation. And that's oh, oh why, I'm sorry. That's why I made that comment. I'm sure that it was followed <laughs> yep. from the one visit to the next. Exactly. So do the wine, okay? Okay. All right. We'll, we'll do some wine. Let me, let me talk about some wine here. I want to talk about some real wine. All right. We again are moving through what I consider to be reasonably priced. Remember what I said? Reasonably priced. Up and coming wines, and uh, there's a there's a vineyard in California, Tatomer, T A T O M E R. Not big, not fancy, but they aren't charging big fancy prices either. And for stuff that in and this review was written by Parker himself from the Wine Advocate, and uh, Santa Barbara County, uh, a great white wine for twenty five bucks. That's not bad. Their Riesling uh, uh, Vandenberg, $25 a bottle. That's Tatamer. And uh, that's the kind of thing which uh, domestic, you can get it through your wine broker. And uh, Wine broker? Yeah. Is it a Costco? If it's not a Costco, I'm not interested. <laughs> that's La Crema, Rick. That's La Crema. Actually, I, that's a very good wine. Well, we've reviewed La Crema here and said... That's my wife's favorite. I know it's your wife's favorite. And uh, first time I had it was at your place. It was very good. We've reviewed it here for risk management. and uh, But I've got this. We've got now one to join it. Okie dokie. All righty. All right. So let's let's wrap it up. That is the January issue of Risk Management Monthly. Uh, I want to thank my friend uh, Kevin and Greg. Uh, appreciate your uh, input here. It's It's amazing that so many of your comments echoed exactly what uh, Dighton said last month regarding uh, this risk management well, stuff. I'm glad to be in good company, and I can't thank you enough it's, for letting me join you, too. Uh, I, I, I thank you for taking the time with us.